0: We are we are back for Thursdays at noon, and we're going to continue in the book of First Peter. Uh, and we're going to end chapter two today. So, if you got your Bibles, we're going to be in First Peter uh, chapter two, verses eighteen through twenty-five. So, we'll read that, and we'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll start. Uh, so, First Peter chapter two, verses eighteen to twenty-five says this: Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures suffering. One endures while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But what if you do good and suffer for it and you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's a lot in there, so we'll pray, and then we'll get started. Uh, Father, we love you. Um, God, we thank you for the chance to have your word in front of us. Um, God, I pray that you'd speak to us uh, about suffering, uh, that we'd understand uh, your purpose in suffering, and that we would look to Jesus, uh, who suffered for us, who suffered as the example for us to follow, and who suffered in in, in our place to save us from eternal suffering. Um, God, we love you. We thank you for your Son who has given us life instead of death. Help us to understand. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And it's in your sons and we pray. Amen. All right, so um, probably the big question to ask uh, that has to do with suffering, I think, is what is God's purpose in suffering or like, what does it do? Why does it happen? Um, I think for me, uh, intellectually, I can understand, I can I can grasp or explain to you uh, what God does in suffering. I think I can give you an answer, but to actually see it or to live it or have an, an actual example, I think is a whole different thing than me just explain to you what happened. Um, so here's here's a couple examples. In 2015, uh, ISIS members were heavily attacking and threatening Christians uh, spread all throughout the, the Middle East as they are as well. In um, Iraq's largest Christian town, uh, I'm gonna butcher the pronouncing, I'm pretty sure, uh, Karakosh was threatened and then later overthrown by ISIS in 2015. And the Christians fled and they left, everything, left their houses, left possessions, everything they had. Um, and then in that same year in a refugee camp, there's a news station in that area that interviewed some of the Christians at the camp, in particular a 10-year-old girl named Miriam. And she was asked this, what are your thoughts towards what happened? So um, your family got chased off, you had to leave everything, leave your school, leave your family, leave your friends... Uh, parents that leave their jobs, what are your thoughts? And she says that she prays that God will forgive them and they asked her if if you forgive them and she said this, um, I forgive them because Jesus commands to love and forgive others. So a 10 year old girl gets chased off from Isis and understands that she has to forgive others. That she understands that this is God's command to love them even in this. So that's real hard suffering uh, that 10-year-old girl just kind of floored us with. Um, but again, what does it do? So I think that that's a Christian uh, attitude in suffering. But what does this suffering do? Here's one more quick story. Um, in Egypt, the Coptic Christians uh, are attacked. Um, a couple of Palm Sundays ago, they are martyred uh, by Muslims. And the Christians there were speaking of their forgiveness and how they, uh, the love of God changed them to forgive the people who attacked and martyred some of their friends. And the reaction in Egypt was so huge that one of the most well-known talk show hosts, so a Jimmy Fallon of, of Egypt, um, that covered this story. The, on, on live on the air, he says this, after explaining that all that happened, all the killing, all the murder, and all the Christians forgiving, here's what he says. The Christians of Egypt are made of steel. I think it's probably one of the most profound lines that I, you, you could say from that. And then shortly after, they interviewed one of the bishops about what happened, and he said this, When people see this attitude from Christians in the church, they're going to ask themselves, What kind of power is this? But with this witness, we must also declare the message of Christ, which we are fulfilling, literally. We may not see the response immediately, but we will see it in the near future. So I think that pastor kind of understands what's going to happen is people are going to see in suffering... Why does he act that way? Why does a 10-year-old girl forgive people who just chased her off in the house and killed? Why, why does this man who's on the news station say, These Christians are made of steel. Why does this pastor say people are going to ask what power is? I think it's because suffering is designed by God in some mysterious way to show us uh, the greatness of God, excuse me, and to show us the bigness of God. And somehow it shows that God is better than suffering or shows that he's valuable even in it. Uh, suffering kind of weeds out everything that's not important and kind of holds on to what is important. And in some mysterious way, God's mission, the gospel, is spread through suffering. is doesn't stop in. It actually spreads quicker in suffering, which is very counter to our thinking. So in this, in this letter that Peter writes to these suffering Christians, uh, I think in this text he's, he's going to address three things regarding the issue of suffering. Um, and again, I try to be uh, helpful and give you... Um, a quick way to kind of think of it, so there's three things I got. Uh, the three things are this. Uh, there is a type of suffering that pleases God. The next thing is the suffering example of Christ. And the third thing is the suffering that saved us from eternal suffering. So I've used the word suffering like five times, but again, they are suffering that pleases God, the suffering example of Christ, and the suffering that saved us from our eternal suffering. Uh, so first, I want to see the kind of suffering that pleases God. So if you look in verse 18, uh, here's what Peter does. Uh, so he just started off talking about how God has instituted over us every human institution that goes from the governor, to the president, to your mayor, uh, to the police. Um, he says, servants also be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So when Peter types uh, types or writes the word uh, servants. Uh, If you have an uh, ESV Bible like I do, or even maybe your regular Bible has a footnote, and at some point on the page, it will say the word doulos, which means slave. Uh, So quickly, when Peter's calling us servants or slaves, this is isn't the type of slavery we have in America, where it's by race or by ethnicity. Um, It's more of kind of like a job, uh, kind of like a servant in a house. If you couldn't pay for a debt, you would sell your family into slavery. But again, it wasn't based off race. It was based off of, it was a job. You got paid for it. So in this text, uh, Peter's calling us to be subject to the governors. And now he's saying, even more personal, during your 9-5 to day, be subject to your authority, be subject to your boss. So if you're at work, Christians are called to be subject to their master, to their boss. I mean, if you think about it, this really isn't a hard command to follow. Do what your boss says. I think anybody can really do that, and I think that's what Peter's trying to get at. And that's why he adds on the second part that not many people enjoy. So anybody can like their boss when they're nice to them. I think it's very easy if your boss is good to you, if he seems pretty fair, uh, doesn't nail you for being two minutes late, is pretty laid back on that kind of thing. uh, That's good. We like that. But Peter points out something even harder. He says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this very same thing. He says this to his disciples. For if you, disciples, love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So again, tax collectors aren't just the kind of people that work for the IRS. They're the kind of people that are Jewish who are probably your neighbors who are now working for the enemy of Rome who are overthrowing your people who are robbing from you to supply the government. That's destroying the area. So tax collectors were very hated. They were very cruel, um, and they they were dirty. But it's, it's like having your friend betray you for the country. That's how serious it was. So what Jesus even says, if these men who we hate can do that, can love those who love them, then how can you think that's hard? So what Jesus is trying to say is anybody can do that. Anybody can love those who love them back. Even little kids know how to do that. They they understand how easy it is. But how about those bosses that are really hard, that are cruel or unfair or harsh or they're nitpicking over, over the smallest things. And maybe you have one of those bosses. And I think, I think there's two things in this text that we should understand and why we need to be obedient. So in the context of 1 Peter, the first thing I think we need to understand is uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the very first thing Peter says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So the first thing Peter's reminding us in this context is you are first and foremost a Christian. You're not a target employee first. You're not a barista. You're not a teacher first. You are a chosen one of God. You are a holy person. Priesthood for his own possession you are chosen by God and the second thing in the same context as verses 13 to 14 of chapter 2 is every institution every power from teacher to boss to president uh, to your parents God put them over you That, that is God's doing God put them over you so first and foremost you are a Christian and second of all You understand that God placed them over you so that's why we're obedient because we see we are of God and those people in a different sense are of God in the sense that he put them there so first Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession so God chose you therefore you identify with Christ first not with your job we covered that a couple of sermons ago, but the point is, is that's why you can serve God, even in and be obedient to your boss, even in a tough spot, because ultimately you're obeying God and making much of God first and foremost. And I think for us, the natural reaction is to be kind to those who are kind to you, and the natural reaction is also to be rude to those who are rude to you. So if your boss is harsh on you, I want to shoot back or make a smart remark or disobey or as soon as they walk away, talk bad about them. That's the natural reaction. But if you're a Christian, remember First Peter chapter one says you have been born again. So you have a new nature. You have a new natural reaction. There should be something new within you that says you're supposed to love and to serve those over you even if they don't seem fair or if they're harsh. Now we have a new nature like the second Adam who is Jesus Christ. But you might object to this. Uh so this is interesting. So Verse 18, servants be subject to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Um, I think you could you could argue that a lot of people have to do that. So not just Christians, if you go down to go down to the street, I think any uh, any employee at some point in their life will have a worker, uh, a boss, I'm sorry, or a teacher, or just a superior over them who is harsh, who is rude, who is a pain to work for. And like many, uh, we are told to tough it out. Suck it up, work hard, forget about them, don't worry about it. I don't think that's bad advice. But how is that different? Because this is a biblical command. So are those people, are they glorifying God by doing that? That's the question. And I think verse 19 kind of gives you that answer. So by obeying your unjust or your unfair bosses, Peter says this, for this is a gracious thing. So again, Are unbelievers pleasing God? Is there a way that they're making God happy and say, way to go? I think if you keep looking, you'll understand this is not what Peter's trying to say. Uh, This is the gracious thing that pleases God. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So the kind of suffering that pleases God, there's a difference between a Christian at work under a harsh boss and a non-Christian. you got the same boss, but one of them pleases God and one of them doesn't. And I think is what Peter's trying to say. So again, I want to get back to the context of this. This would be helpful to understand. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read in verses 6 and 7 that God is the one who appoints trials, who um, ordains our tests in our lives to grow our faith. And then in chapter 2, again, verse 13 and 14, God appointed those over you. So I think you could argue from this text that God did do this to purify you from your sin, to purify you, to make you more holy, to love Christ more. And that, that mystery that God does is, is how we remain mindful of God. So what's it mean to be mindful of God? Um, I don't think it means you just understand that God exists. I don't think that's what Peter's trying to get at, because that, that doesn't seem like the answer. Um, if you look at the, the understanding of this, it is being mindful or being aware of what God is doing. So again, if God appoints all of our trials in our life, and if God is one who appoints people over you in your life, and I think you can conclude that this trial, this harsh boss, or this cruel time in your life is appointed by God. And that's how you're mindful of God. That's what Christians do. That's the difference. So Christians are pleasing God. It's a gracious thing. It pleases God in the sense that we understand this is God's hand. It's not random. It's not just a mean boss who, who's a bad day, which that, that could be it. That's probably true. But we're mindful of God, we glorify God in the sense that we understand this is God's hand. He's placed this person over me, this is his plan. I don't understand why it's happening, but this is God's hand. He wants to make me more like Christ. That is how Christians please God in their suffering. That's the difference between toughing it out, so to speak, and saying this is God's design, he is over me, he is for me in this, even when it doesn't seem that way, he actually is for me. And he wants me to be more like his son. And again, if you look at verse 20, Peter clarifies it. You know The question is, well, if that's the case. Maybe I should go jack around and get in trouble for it and say, God is testing me. God is in, in for my good. Well, Peter says in the verse 20, uh, What credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it and you endure? Peter's saying, look, if you're going to do something dumb and get in trouble for it, that's not persecution. That's just you being really dumb. Right. So you're called to be righteous, to do, it, if you look at the verse, to do good and you suffer for it. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So... God is only pleased with your suffering at work when it's for you being obedient, not for you disobeying. So if you're screwing around, if you are late, if you are back-talking, you get in trouble for it, God is not pleased. What pleases God is our obedience to do good, and we're mindful of his appointed trials in these things that makes him look good by saying, God, I trust you. You are for me. You love me. This is for my good. I don't get it, but you've appointed this. So what kind of suffering pleases God? Suffering for doing good while being mindful and seeing that this is God's ordering and appointing in our life. That's what pleases God. That's what kind of suffering that God uh, enjoys, if you want to put it that way. It's kind of a helpful way to understand it. So the next thing we're going to look at is the suffering example of Jesus. That's what Peter calls us to do next. So this is how we understand how to suffer well, so to speak, how to endure biblically and correctly the way Jesus did. So throughout the scriptures, you see verses, particularly in the Gospels, but uh, I got two in the book of Acts and one in Philippians as well, uh, about um, verses that seem a very common thread. Here's where they are. Uh, Matthew 10 says this, Jesus speaking. He says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, John 15 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Uh, Two more, Acts 14 Paul is going through all the churches telling the Christians to be strengthened, to endure. He's giving them courage. And and he says this, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. So suffering as a christian isn't strange to the new testament it's very ordinary it's very even granted according to philippians 1. Uh, it's foretold it's promised it's considered something that we must do and it goes along with your faith as being a christian so in verse 21 peter says this for to this to suffering you have been called because christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so it looks like in this text, we are called by God and ordered by him to suffer for the name of the gospel, to suffer for his son. Um, if, you know, if you are a little familiar with technology, um, just some random things. If you know what, what a word cloud is, uh, so if you go online, you type in word cloud generator or word cloud maker, what it is. It's a program that if you type in a paragraph or a sentence... And you click enter, or click the generate button, or whatever you click. What it does, it arranges all the words in that paragraph into a, like a, a shape or an arrangement. And the bigger the word is in the paragraph, shows that, that that word is used the most. So that makes sense. So if you type in a sentence, the bigger the word, that means those word is used the most in the paragraph or in the sentence. Uh, if you word cloud the entire book of First Peter, uh, here's the top three words, and this is very significant, I think, for what we're going through. Uh, the first one's God, so that's good. The second one's Christ. It's also very good. And number three is the word suffer. So the top three things in the book of Peter, according to just typing in the words again, there's God, Christ, and suffer. So suffering is all over this book. It is splattered throughout. And to this you have been called. So Peter's making it very clear. This is not a mystery. This is not weird. You've been called to suffer as a Christian. So just as Jesus suffered, we are called and granted suffering. We're called to follow in his steps and to walk in the way that he walked. And he was also, of course, mindful of God. Who suffered unjustly and understood what God was doing. So this is the example of Isaiah 53, which we see the suffering servant that Peter's going to bring to light for us in the New Testament. So in verse 22, here's what we read. So you've been called to suffer. It's your duty to suffer. And he said, here's what Jesus did. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth." So in the Gospels, if you look in Jesus' life when he's held before the council, before Pilate, um, the text mentions that they had to gather people to make false accusations against him. And it's because Jesus was righteous, he was wise, he never sinned, he was perfect. Uh, So they had to lie to get him in trouble, so that's another indicator. Uh, Jesus wasn't just innocent, but he was righteous, so something he didn't do wrong, which is true, but he always obeyed. So he always did the best. He always obeyed. And there's no deceit, so he was not trickery. He didn't have anything sneaky. He was trying to get around and lie around. But in Matthew 4, if it was interesting, is I think Christians sometimes misunderstand this. We read that Jesus was tempted. So the question is. Is being tempted, is, did, was that considered sin? Did Jesus sin in his temptation? I think a lot of us understand that's different, but I want to get clear that Jesus was tempted, as we are, as Hebrews says, but he didn't sin. And I think a really helpful illustration to give you, just to grasp what that means, that he was tempted but never sinned, is if you've ever watched the Olympics before, and you've seen my favorite, I like watching all of the, the manly weight stuff. I think it's neat to watch how strong these men are. If you watch the barbell, they hold the bar here and they go over their head and they hold it up, right? So if you're holding up the weight, sinning would be holding the weight and struggling letting it fall down. You'd fail. You gave in. It's easier just to let go than keep pushing on with the weight, right? What's harder is to hold the weight up as long as you can and push and push and push and push. because you're shaking, your arms are weak. It's hard, but you succeed. You don't fail. You, you continue on. So temptation is fighting. It's, not, it's actually not easier. It's harder. Being tempted is harder than sinning. Sinning is just saying, I'll give in, I'll drop the weight, I'll walk away, I'm done. So sinning is, is a shortcut. Temptation is the heart. you got to push, you got to resist. So what Jesus did was he didn't sin, he didn't give in. He always fought temptation. He always, he always won. But it's not easy. I think we always forget, oh, it's easy. He was God. He had no problem. He was also fully man, so he fought temptation. Fully, completely. So he didn't sin. So I think if we understand that, we'll get... That It says he didn't sin. It wasn't easy. He had to fight temptation. It was hard. But Jesus did it perfectly. So he remained fully obedient in all of his father's commands. And in verse 23, we see that Jesus was reviled. And he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus was mocked throughout his ministry. He was called out of his mind and market. They called him Crazy. On Matthew, they called him a drunkard. And if you remember on the cross, he was hanging, gasping for breath. He was ridiculed and mocked still. And how easy could Jesus have just said, You know what? Angels, come clean house. And they would have obeyed. They would have joyfully done whatever he said. But not only that, Jesus even fought the sin, I'm sure, fought the temptation, I'm sure, to say, Well, you guys are awful too. I mean, Jesus could have lashed back. He could have said anything he wanted. But he did not fire back. He resisted temptation. And as Isaiah 53 says again, he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was quiet. He opened not his mouth, right? So Jesus also suffered unjustly for crimes he did not commit. And he did not threaten back. So again, uh, think of the story of Jesus. I think we we skim over it so quickly. He was betrayed by a sweet kiss, by something that you do to greet one another. He was betrayed, and Jesus didn't fight back. Peter did, but Jesus didn't fight back. During the mock trial when Jesus was called horrible things, he didn't threaten and say, I'm going to bring it, you better wait. Before Pilate, he was silent. He didn't have to plea his case. He just listened. He was quiet. He didn't get angry. He was peaceful. And all the while, suffering unjustly while he lived perfectly, he had to just sit there and endure false accusations, lying lips. People he knew just betrayed him. And Jesus never sinned one time in that. And people like us, you know, like myself, if I'm betrayed or if I get wronged, I want to sin right back. And I typically do either an action or a thought. And Jesus did not He resisted. He was good. He was perfect. That's the life Jesus lived. That's just a piece of it. In Matthew 26, 56, I think this is where, if you go back to 1 Peter, um, verse 19 in this section, um, mindful of God, I think Jesus did this perfectly in this sense. Let me read this verse to you. So just as Jesus was betrayed in the garden, as the, Matthew says, the crowds and the people came with him, um, this is what Jesus says, Matthew 26, 56. Listen to how he responds. I think this is the most perfect understanding of a mindful of God response you could ever ask for. Jesus said this to his disciples and attackers, of course. But all of this, all this betrayal, all this craziness, all this cunning, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled so jesus didn't fight he understood this is my father's will this is the plan as painful as as cruel as it was to be betrayed by your friends jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly as we just read here in verse 23 that is what peter's asking us to do so jesus trusted the father's plan Though he was in pain and betrayal and death, he entrusts himself to his father's justice. Or as a beautiful eulogy says in a rap, they say uh, the throne were perfect justice. I won't rap for you because, well, I can't do that. But Jesus entrusts himself to perfect justice, to to the father's throne, to his father's will. So God's perfect justice will always be done, either in the present time or finally in the future. Either way, it will be done. And will not the judge of all the earth do right? Jesus understood that. He trusted himself to his father's justice. So he perfectly obeyed his father's will, and never sinned. He always obeyed while we have always rebelled. This is how Jesus lived and how we fail to live. And I think that's why this text for us is so astonishing to read how he lived. We just we don't even get close to this and Jesus did it perfectly. So how does this suffering life and the example of Christ why does that matter to us? How does this have anything to do with myself? So again, we think of Jesus' life. Here's a couple things. So here's some things that he did perfectly, just just to make sure we understand how how crucial. Because I think if we get this, uh, the gospel makes sense in suffering. So Jesus always loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, always, forever. Uh, he loved his neighbor as himself perfectly. Uh, Jesus kept the Sabbath and rested during his labors. Uh, he had no other gods before him. He always obeyed his parents. He never lied, stole, or cheated. Again, when he suffered, he didn't threaten. When he was insulted, he didn't fire back. He remained obedient. But how about us? If you know anything about me, you know that I don't love God all the time, forever. With my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, I don't do that. Uh, we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We just don't. We, we like to love ourselves as ourselves, Our neighbor can get it, take a hike. Uh, we work too much. We, we don't rest. The American culture likes to work, 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 and rest later. Uh, we, we have dishonored our parents. We do lie and we have cheated and we have insulted. When, when, we're, when we get insulted, we fire back. Friends, we've not been perfectly obedient. We've been actually just the opposite. And that's what the Bible calls sin is disobeying God's, breaking his commandments. Um, I think a typical phrase people like to say is sin is kind of like, it's like a boo-boo. and it's, it's, it's bad. Um, sin is not just like a mistake. It's not just like a, a boo-boo before God. Um, God hates it. Uh, God is very serious about sin. It's not something to mess with. Uh, The Bible actually calls, it says, sin is lawlessness, so sin is rebellion against God. It's breaking his laws. Uh, It's high treason. It's not something that we can just look over and say it's okay. Uh, And sin deserves punishment. And a good God will punish all evil. That's how good he is, even to the smallest. So from the worst killer to the smallest little criminal, God will get him because he's that good. He, He doesn't let anything slide. And it's not the bigness of the crime committed that makes God's punishment so serious, but it's it's who it's committed against. So liars get the same punishment as murder does, not because uh, they are both really mean, but because of who the crime's committed against. It actually works in our courts in America, if you think about it, too. Um, The reason why murdering a homeless guy and murdering a president, you get one is... Years in prison, one is probably death penalty, and if not life in prison, is because of who the crime is committed against. It has nothing to do with their age or their wealth, but against the authority of that person. So the higher the crime committed against the authority, the higher the punishment given. And all of our crimes, the Bible says, are ultimately against God. Psalm 51 says we have sinned against God alone. So all of our sins, sins deserve an eternal suffering, an eternal punishment. And this is where verse 24 and 25 rings very loudly. Verse 24, we read this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's enough for a sermon just to read that verse. I think and can go home. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He lived perfectly righteous and we have lived terribly unrighteous and sinful. Yet, Jesus was counted as if he lived our life, though he committed none of our acts of treason. Uh, Some commentators say Jesus was so far from sin, the only sin he could ever bear was that from another. That's how sinless he was. It had to be someone else's. There's no counting against him. Uh, He suffered unjustly in the sense that he did not commit those sins, but yet it was a just punishment in the sense that sin was punished under God's hand. So the righteous one bears the injustices to satisfy the just one. Say that two times fast, and I won't be able to do it again. This was done so that, look at the verse again, we might die to sin. So sin's penalty is killed with Christ. Our sin penalty is born on Christ. Jesus also died to free us from the power of sin, from His influence, so that, if you read the verse again, we might live to God. Live to righteousness. So the good news of the gospel is that there's something that we overlook, is when we turn from our sin, when we repent and turn to God in faith, uh, we are, the Bible, the theology is a word called union with Christ. So we are made one with Christ. We are joined to Him. And here's some of the beautiful Bible language that happens because Jesus did this, because of our faith. Here's what the Bible says. It says we are dead to sin. Uh, we've been crucified with Christ. We've been buried with Him in baptism. So it's showing we've been buried with Him, right? And then in Galatians chapter 3, it says, Jesus became a curse for us. It's because of our union with Christ. And by faith, here's what we get in return. We are raised with Christ. Christ lives within us. We are seated with Him in the heavenly places. And we are to live to God. I think Romans 6, 10-11 says it best. It says this, For the death He died... He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. This is the big part, in Christ Jesus. So your union with God, union with Christ, considers yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Your penalty is paid. You are now in Christ before God. And that's the good news of the gospel. We have gone from dead in sin and dead to God to dead to sin and alive in God. That's what the gospel has done for us. So no longer are we condemned by his wounds. We have been healed. Jesus' his stripes, his, his death, his beating was all on our behalf. And by that we are healed. Again, that's Isaiah 53 being pronounced again and again. And here's the accomplishment, the suffering that Jesus did in our place. Look at verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I love this verse because again, it makes it very clear whose fault it was. You, for you were straying like sheep. It's not his fault. It's not God's fault. It's my fault. We were straying like sheep. It is our guilt. It is our fault. Yet Jesus bore our sins for us. So friends, we all actually have gone astray. We've wandered off to be devoured and instead the Lamb of God is devoured in our place. That's what, that's, that's what Jesus done for us. Uh, we are guilty as our doing, but just like the text said, unjust bosses were credited with their. If you look, it says that the people who are unjust, so the bosses are credited with injustice. We are credited with injustice, yet Christ suffers our injustice for us. So the weird irony of this is Jesus suffered to shepherd us. Uh, he, we, he strayed to return us from our string. Uh This suffering is designed to save us from eternal suffering. So the death of Jesus, as we close, the death of Jesus satisfied the justice of God for all of our injustice. Therefore, God can now justly count us as righteous because of his life, not because of anything we've done. So therefore, when we suffer under our boss, under a harsh boss or a cruel teacher, or however you want to put that, we understand that because Jesus suffered in our place to the most unjust, cruel way because of our sins, we can understand to walk in this way, to walk in His way, is not really that much of a thing compared to what He did. It helps understand why He did it and why we do it too. We live like Christ to suffer with Christ. So by His wounds we've been healed and we get to live forever with the Lamb who suffered for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for First uh, Peter, again for this text. Uh, God, we thank You for suffering, for the example that Christ set for us. God, help us to suffer well. Um, Help us to understand that to be mindful of you in our suffering uh, that is not random, that's appointed by you in some mysterious way. Help us to see that Christ suffered for us, leaving the example to follow, and that his suffering ultimately saved us from our just suffering of your wrath forever. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving us. I pray that we continue to honor you in our life, that we would make you look good at work, under bosses, under teachers who may be able to honor you and to glorify you, that you look valuable. In your name we pray. Amen.